Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, for the gift of life, for the gift of this fellowship and community, and the gift of your word. We pray, Lord, that as we break open the word, that we would encounter you tonight, that you would speak to us and send your Holy Spirit upon us. Anoint this place and this time. We lay it all at your feet, including our own lives, Lord. We just ask that whatever is potentially worrying us, distracting us, or drawing our attention and focus away from this time, that you would remove those things from our hearts and minds and allow us to be fully present to you here as you are fully present to us. We pray, Lord, as we study the word, as we prepare for this upcoming Lenten season, which begins this week, that you would convict each one of us and clarify for us what it is you would like us to commit to or abstain from during this Lenten season so that we can be more transformed into the people you have called us to be. And so help us to be bold and radical in our commitments and our decisions and the things we want to let go of so that we can uh, be more moldable in your hands, Lord, so that you can make in us and make out of us the people that you desire. So we ask that you bless us each in the ways that we most need it. Bless this time. And we ask all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on in. Welcome. We're in Matthew chapter 4. Verses 1 through 11. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the first Sunday of Lent. Yes, Lent alert. Lent begins this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. Uh, We have services here at 6 a.m., 12.15, 7 p.m., and then we have masses as well at 8.30 and 5, all of which uh, you can get your ashes at. So I hope to see you at one of those many services. But uh, Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent, which is a season of preparation for Easter. And so we commit to the practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving so that we can repent and sacrificially live in such a way that we are more properly disposed to celebrate the joy of the resurrection on Easter. So this is the first uh, of many Lenten Gospels that we will have over the coming weeks. And it is the uh, kind of foundational Gospel for the season of Lent. It's Jesus's wandering and temptation, not wandering, his temptation, Uh, for 40 days in the desert. So we're going to read this account in the Gospel of Matthew, verses 1 through 11. So first time through, let's set the scene. I want you to paint this picture in your mind. Uh, You've heard this many times before. We are starting with a blank canvas. Pretend you've never heard this. You've never seen an image of this story. Imagine Jesus as you desire to imagine him this evening in whatever this desert scene is in his encounter with the devil, however you want to imagine that, and see what you notice as we read through this the first time. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command that these stones become loaves of bread. Jesus said in reply, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence. And he said to him, All these I shall give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this, Jesus said to him, get away, Satan. It is written, the Lord your God shall you worship and him alone shall you serve. 
Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So hopefully you now have an image in your mind, uh, maybe a fresh one this evening of this scene. We're going to read this a second time, and as we do, pay attention now to the words as they are written. A particular word or phrase may stand out to you for whatever reason. Pay attention to that. It does not have to have anything to do with the passage. Maybe a word strikes you or grabs you because it resonates with a memory, a problem, a question going on in your own life. Pay attention to those things and begin to reflect on them. Why is this standing out to me? How is the Lord desiring to speak to me through this thing? So once more in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards, he was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. Jesus said in reply, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their magnificence. And he said to him, All these I shall give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. It is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I now invite you to reflect back on this passage, now that we've read it twice through, the things that stood out to you, the questions that arose as you read it. We're going to take some time at the tables to share uh, what those things were that stood out or any questions you have. We'll take about 10 minutes to do that. If you're listening or watching to this later, please let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here, I'll call you back uh, in a few minutes, uh, about 10, 15 minutes, so we can discuss in a larger group. So what are some things in uh, this passage that are standing out, causing questions, things you're curious about? Roberto? Yes. Um, when uh, a Satan is bringing Jesus, mm -hmm. obviously it is probably the Satan brings an image in front of him. Of, uh, Possibly. Because I cannot imagine that Jesus is being led, is being is following. Hmm. Could you elaborate on that? Well, part of this is the mystery of Jesus's two wills and his two natures. You know, Jesus is both a fully human and fully divine. And so in his full human nature, like he has the ability to be influenced or uh, tempted by the devil, just like we do. But in his divine nature, he has the power to overcome and cast out the devil. And so you could see it as maybe he's allowing his human nature to experience temptation. Because it says in Hebrews, like, we have a great high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, you know, who has been able to relate to us in everything but sin, who endured temptation. And so he wanted to endure a real human life and experience. And so he may have allowed himself uh, to undergo the influence of the devil's power in that moment for the devil, the devil to take him. Or the devil could have just sh shown him, you know, there. But it does say he brings him to a geographical place. He doesn't say he shows him Jerusalem like it does in the following temptation where he says he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says he brings him to the parapet of the temple, the highest point of the temple. And so it's a very specific physical place. Remember, Satan is an angel. Satan isn't bound by a body. He's completely non-corporeal. He's completely spiritual. He has a higher intellect than we do, better power, uh, ability to manipulate matter, potentially, depending on the type of angel that you are. If you're an angel, um, you have the, these certain abilities that God has given you within the providence of creation to control certain things and influence creation. And so you can even take on corporeal forms, you know, appear as a human. 
uh, like Raphael in the, the Archangel Raphael in the Book of Tobit does that. So, um, you know, it could be either, you know, he, but I think um, it's completely within Satan's power and ability to do that if Jesus allows him to. And it would kind of make sense in the mystery of Jesus having a human nature that he would allow the devil to do that so he could experience temptation so then to overcome it, if that makes sense. Yes, you're welcome. There was a hand up back there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was I was reading in the um, uh, sub notes, and the one that kind of stuck out to me was uh, Jesus. Jesus is tempted by the devil to rebel against God, and then when I kind of like read that line, I'm like, well, Jesus is called to is called in this instance to try to rebel against God. He's being called to rebel against himself, right? Mm -hmm. And then so thinking about that line, I'm like. Well, if we're constantly being tempted, we're also called by Satan to rebel against God. But then thinking about like the second one I came up with, Jesus trying to betray himself, wouldn't we also be betraying ourselves if we then sin? Because I, I feel like sometimes we're always caught up in like, whenever we sin, we're like, oh, I'm so sorry, God. Oh, I'm so sorry, God, for rebelling against you. But not oftentimes do we identify mm. rebelling against ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, because when we experience sin, we're experiencing a disordered reality of the people that we are intended to be, right? And so we had a different uh, experience of existence in the Garden of Eden before the fall. You know, we had the, what are called the preternatural gifts, we had immortality, innocence, and um, infused knowledge, meaning that we had a higher sense of understanding and knowledge about the universe. Immortality, we wouldn't die. and innocence, we had no tendency to sin. Uh, we had free will, so we could choose it, but we didn't have the innate tendency that we do now as a result of original sin. So that is who we were created to be, uh, divine sons and daughters of God. And so you're right, every time we sin, we're distorting something that's good that was intended for good. And we are not only rebelling against God, but we're rebelling against the people that we were created to be. We're rebelling against ourselves, our true nature. Absolutely. Yeah, Baron. I, I looked at it, and what it took away was... Um... The fact that Jesus wasn't willing to put a price on his name, mm. his divinity does not have a price. Amen. Yeah. And it shows uh, how loyal he was to, to the Lord. And, and most people, uh, especially today, would, would take the take the riches, would take the the bounty than to stay loyal to God. Yeah. So it just shows how spectacular and how miraculous Jesus was here. Yeah. But it also begs the question, why did Jesus do this? You know, why do we have this story? Matthew wasn't there. No other disciple was there. They only know about it because Jesus wanted them to know about it. Right? Otherwise, they would have had no idea. He had to tell them that this happened. So if he wanted it for himself, just so that he could ensure that he understood human nature to be tempted and overcome it, why tell anyone? Why not just go over that on your own? Do you have a, a, a guess? It, yes, in a way, I'll, I'll rephrase what you just said. He wanted to be an example for us. Yes, that's one of the reasons for the incarnation, that Jesus is a model of holiness for us. So that we can get caught up in all the meticulous, like, okay, why did Jesus do this and his nature and all of that? But we have to remember that we only have this story because Jesus wanted us to know that this happened so that we could look to him as our example, that he, in his human nature, faced temptation, responded to it in a certain way as a model for you and I when we face temptation to respond in the same kind. That's why we have this. Otherwise, Jesus could have just kept this to himself. He had the knowledge of temptation. We have other evidence later in Scripture that he is tempted, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, Father, if... Uh, if uh, if it's within your power or within your will, take this cup for me, but not my will, but yours be done. You know, uh, people often cite that as a potential, you know, that he's battling with the temptation of avoiding the cross, but he submits to the will of the Father. That's another example, you know. But in this instance, he wanted us to have a model for the tactics of the devil and a game plan, almost like a, a you know, a battle manual for facing the different tactics of the devil so that we would have an example to follow. Yeah, no. Yeah, and I think on that point, especially the example in, in facing temptation, 
because a lot of the accidentals of what this journey actually entailed, we really find out more through tradition. Because um, in, in this specific context, this was a um, this was a pilgrimage atop Mount Jericho, overlooking the ruins of the city, and and there's like a specific knob, like at towards like the top of the mountain, towards mm -hmm. the summit of the mountain. And it's a very arduous journey that, you know, many Hebrews take, like, from, from all over to the top of the mountain, usually in the later summer, which is a very brutal climate, mm -hmm. especially, like, given the Palestinian geography. Adding on this, the fast that he was already undertaking, the length of the fast, fast that he was undertaking, um, and, you know, what he had at his disposal to make the journey, the climate, the geography, um, and, you know, the beasts, the thieves, I mean, mm -hmm. everything. I mean, at least, at least in my mind, this is probably the second most broken, you know, Christ would have been physically and in, in his male form, you know, like mm. the crucifixion. I mean, a very arduous journey. And of course, you know, Satan is, is very cunning. He came to him when he saw how weak he was. Mm. He said, oh, well, you'll give in now because you want to nourish yourself. You've been broken. Yeah. And I, I, I've come to lend the final blow. And you know, thinking like Christ transmitting this to the apostles. They were like, you went through all that and you still didn't give in? Mm. You know, and that, that must have been very inspiring um, in addition. But yeah, like we, we don't even glean that from the scripture itself. We only know from, from the traditions, like how, you know, brutal this journey was on Christ and like what refuting Satan actually meant, like how powerful that actually was in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're reminding me of a lot of things here. So, um, so what, first of all, what Noah was referring to, if, if you're, you're not familiar, there's a, a, a tradition that dates back, I believe, to the 4th century. It doesn't date back to Scripture, but it, it's believed that um, there's a, a mountain near Jericho that's called the Mount of, of uh, Temptation, um, or the Mount Jericho. Its uh, regular name is like Jebul Kuruntul or something like that. But um, it's, it's 1,300 feet-ish in elevation, and Jericho is about 850 feet below sea level. So there's this, and it's like right there. Jericho's right at the base of this mountain, and there's this kind of outcropping thing that's built into it with some caves. Like, it's just very uh, imposing. And it became a pilgrimage, um, and it was a, a tradition, legend kind of uh, lended itself to saying, this is a cave in which Jesus was tempted, um, specifically associated with the last temptation where uh, Satan takes Jesus to a high place to see all the kingdoms. And Jericho's right there on the outskirts of the promised land. So you'd have a pretty good view from that vista. The only thing higher in the elevation that I would be aware of is Jerusalem itself, on Mount Zion, which was very high, 2,250 feet or so in elevation, I believe. So um, so that's what, what Noah's referring to. Um, it's interesting that, that what you're saying, because I've never thought about it like that before, that Satan would come to Jesus when he appeared most weak, because... I, I particularly don't think Jesus was weak in this moment. And I'll tell you why, because um, he's, he's led, first of all, by the Spirit. He's not led out of weakness or out of, out of, out of you know, he, there's an intention to this. But um, ha, has anyone here ever fasted for a couple days? Okay, pretty miserable. Anyone ever fasted for a long period of time? Like what's, it, like, how long? Three days. Three days? Two weeks. Two weeks, okay. <laughs> you trooper you're right into heaven thank you for your saintly sacrifice anyone else anyone else okay greg so so i, I have a similar experience to you longer does something change when you're fasting for a longer period of time uh, well first off the motivation was i was going through divorce at the time mm -hmm. and i actually going through the legal part of it sure and i was overcome with nervousness and and anxiety and all that so basically i just i lost the desire to eat mm. i mean all i could take down was like sparkling water mm. and that was it yeah Only for like two weeks wow trust me i mean my system was cleaned out there was nothing yeah. else coming in yeah but i felt it was weird because during that time i was okay yeah i wasn't hungry mm -hmm. but i was losing I was losing a pound a day. Yeah. Overall. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. But I was able, I was okay. Yeah. Going through that, I mean, I can't believe it. Even when I came, started to come out of it, it took a while to come out of it. Mm -hmm. But 
it was not like all of a sudden I'm going to go out and get a private dinner. It was like a, it yeah. was a very slow process coming out of it. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you do a long fast, if you ever done a long fast, uh, around three days, really hard and miserable. When you get past three or four days, it starts to shift and it becomes surprisingly easy. It's this weird thing that happens and it's a bodily thing. Like your body shifts into more of a, a ketogenic or ketosis kind of, of, of mode. And you know, there, there's a scientific study of a man who, who weighed over, I think 600 pounds in Scotland. And he, he, his doctor, uh, under the advisement of his doctor, did uh, like a pure water and, and a vitamin fast. So he took all the vitamins he needed to be healthy and he drank only water and he fasted with no food for at least 380 days. And what it did is it kicked his body's natural cycle in to use his stored fat for food. That's why we store fat. And it wasn't like his body was in survival mode, like shutting down. His body was actively working and keeping him healthy. It's almost like this like weird hidden superpower we have in our bodies. Um, if you're curious as to the story of how I lost 90 pounds, this is part of it. So, um, but, I, so this is how I found this out, is that when you do an extended fast and you do it in the right way, it actually doesn't weaken you, it strengthens you. And so in one sense, I think Jesus, yes, appeared to the devil, as Noah said, to be weak. But in another sense, I think Jesus was probably at his strongest here. Because when you fast, what it teaches you to do is to have self-control. In fact, any time you go to confession, a majority of the time you go to confession, if you're dealing with any kind of what I would call a fleshy sin or temptation, anything that has to do with the body, you know, whether it's food, alcohol, uh, you know, sexuality, immorality, anything like that, anything temptation or sin of the body, one of the things priests always prescribe is fasting because it gives you command back over your body, disciplining yourself in the ability to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. And because of the average diet of us, you know, in the West and in America, we have a lot of sugar in everything. And so it's really, really miserable to fast for like three days, two or three days, because your body just wants more sugar. But when you get that out of your system, it's like you wake up and you're just like, wait, what? Like, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden it's like, I really don't have to eat. And, and I'm not a doctor, by the way. So I'm not a doctor. All of you out there on the Internet. OK, you need to eat. Be healthy. OK. But I'm just saying it's a kind of a, an interesting thing about long fasts. And everyone I've talked to has a similar thing. In fact, I gave a talk last at our last Lenten gathering kind of about this. And someone, I asked this question, someone in the back had fasted for 40 days before without any food. And I'd asked everyone who had similar small fasts, like three days, four days. And they're like, oh, it was awful. And I, was, and I asked the woman in the back who had fasted for 40. And I was like, was it hard? And she was like, eh. Because it's true. It's like it somehow gives you this like command over your body in such a way that your appetites are no longer so impulsive. They become evened out. And I think in some way that's what Jesus was doing here. And so it's interesting, kind of depending on which way you've seen it, I think we tend to think he was very weak and emaciated. But he was led out by the Spirit to do this for a particular reason. And though it may have been arduous, it may have been difficult, I think that was a lure to make the devil think that he was at his weakest. Just like the cross was a lure to make the devil think that he was at his weakest, and yet by his death defeated death itself so that he could rise again. And so Jesus is, he's sneaky, but in like the best way. Not in like a, a, you know, a sinister way, but he knows what he's doing. And that's why I think we have this battle plan. He wants to share with us the secret sauce of what it takes to face the devil. And this is what it is. This is what it is if we pay close enough attention. Baron. Sorry, John, I got you next. I've seen your hand. Oh, you forgot it? All right, John, to you. Uh, I think on that same note, is one of the things I noticed the first time is there is an increasing desperation on the devil's part. Mm -hmm. Like anything that will work because, and you see that kind of like with the devil's temptations over us is he starts off kind of explicit at first. Hey, command this to become bread. Mm -hmm. It's very black and white. Well, that doesn't work. Okay, let me cite scripture. Maybe I'll kind of, you know, sneak in through the back door with this. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain deception there. But then that doesn't work, and that was supposed to be his big plan. Okay, let me just be super desperate. I mean, think of telling Christ to, like, bow down and worship him. Think of mm -hmm. the, I just think of how, uh, like, how desperate he is, you know, how he's really scraping at the bottom of the barrel for something. Um, and it really kind of gives me this confidence that he's really all 
not all that powerful because mm. you can be stopped right in his tracks by our free will by mere creatures that are way weaker, way less intelligent than mm-hmm. he is. Um, and I think like I see in my life where there's like the devil tries to scare you sometimes with mm-hmm. what he can do. And that as a way to sort of like make you timid. Um, I find for me, it's like nightmares that I get where I'm just like, mm-hmm. what was that? And mm-hmm. um, I go, oh, wait, no, because that's really the per whoever was behind that really isn't that powerful. And that's a desperation move on his part mm-hmm. to get me somewhere. So it's really encouraging, um, especially when you think of how dumb he is too because Christ was at his strongest and yet he thought he was like oh he's so weak I'm going to get him now mm-hmm. let me cite scripture to God himself who inspired him that's my favorite part gonna work. <laughs> so it's, it's great yeah Gage on two things on, on that following off of this point in the moment but, mm-hmm. uh, it strikes me that the, the first monks went into the desert to fight the devil mm-hmm. and so perhaps that's one of the reasons why Christ chose to, to tell the disciples about this to actually introduce the religious life and not just kind of a, like, if you would be perfect, sell what you have and give mm-hmm. the Lord, come follow me, but, like, this is actually how you do it. You go out into the wilderness. Yeah. Um, secondly, on that idea about um, the devil tempting God with divinely inspired scripture, it seems that he thinks that Jesus is at least, like, the Messiah, but perhaps a human Messiah. Do you, mm-hmm. do you think the devil actually is aware that um, this is the second person of the Trinity? Or is that, you know, is he being rhetorical when he says, if you are the son of God? Um, you know, I, I think you could you could interpret it either way. In Mark chapter 1, there's similar language to this when Jesus uh, drives out a demon. Um where he says, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And he uses this language that's kind of like, does he know or does he not know? Like, it's ambiguous enough, you know? So, this Holy One's like Christ. Yes. Yeah, it's not the same word. I don't, yes, yeah. But it's, it's similar enough to where you could interpret it either way. I think the... It's unclear whether or not the devil knows. I think what the devil's trying to do is tempt Jesus into proving it because the, the question he says, if you are, if you are. Have you ever been in a situation like that where it's like, oh, if you're so good at this, then prove it, you know? Oh, if you're so good at this game, let's play right now, one-on-one, me and you, you know? Like that's the, you know, if you think you can beat me in a race, let's run to the end of this street right now. Yeah. That was just for my wife. Um, So (laughs) I won, by the way. Um, (laughs) Yes, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll fight about this forever. I still won. And I won the second time, too. Uh, But, you know, that's what it is. It's like you're laying down your cards. So that's the temptation, right? It's just that one word, if. you know, And that's what the devil does in the garden, right? Because when, when, when God tells Adam and Eve... If you eat the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says, you will surely die. That's what the text says. When the devil comes and he says, oh, is that what, what the Lord said? He says, you will surely not die. One tiny little word, and he twists it. One tiny little word, and he's trying to invite them to question the divine nature, whether God the Father in the story of Genesis or Jesus himself in his own divine nature. If you are who you say you are. So though it's unclear whether the devil really knew or not, I don't think it would matter. I think his strategy would be the same. It's not so much to prove that he's right. What will that do for him? It's more to cut down his faith in himself, Jesus's faith in himself, that he really is who he potentially could be. And that's what he does to us, right? You know, whether or not we come to any conclusion, what he wants to do is plant that seed of doubt. He wants to plant that seed of doubt and say, oh, did he really say that? Did God really say if you ate that tree? That's all the devil is ever doing. Did he really do that? I think sometimes we think like the devil is always looming, tempting, 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 always working at us. No, I don't think that's how the devil works. The devil is too lazy for that. You know, he's not, he doesn't have that work ethic, that kind of divine Jesus-oriented work ethic. He doesn't. What he'll do is something very smart, is he'll whisper into that 
that deep insecurity that you have that he knows because he's smart and he'll just say, is that really what you think? And then he'll back off and he'll let your brain do the rest. That's why it seems so sinister. And yes, there are maybe great saints in the history of the church who kind of went toe-to-toe with the devil, but I think for for the grand um, majority of us, uh, the devil knows exactly what to say in the moment to kind of keep us reeling, you know, and keep us letting us work on ourselves. And then he'll come back at the opportune time and whisper again and whisper again. So, yeah. Aaron again? Oh, now I remember what I was saying. I wanted to pedal back to what you were saying earlier with the sugar. It's not just sugar. It's like microplastics, lead. You know, there's poison everywhere. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And that's uh, that's why I'm such a big uh, advocate for fasting as well because just like how Jesus uh, wouldn't allow himself to be conquered by the devil, Mm -hmm. it's important for us to not let uh, all these pleasures uh, conquer us and to no, reassert dominance over our body. And yeah. Over to not be a slave to anything. Loyalty to Christ. Yeah. Amen. Great. Um, I'm going to throw you a little apologetic challenge here. Oh, great. <laughs> um, from personal knowledge, mm-hmm. it's one religion because of this particular gospel. Yes. These people believe that the devil actually controls the system of things, the world, mm-hmm. actually is behind the control of governments. And how do you answer that kind of question when you have this temptation being presented to Christ, mm-hmm. saying that he can give you the kingdoms of the world? Mm-hmm. How do you answer that? Well, I would first give them credit for the part of that that's true. Because in Scripture, it does say um, in... In John 12 and in John 16, that Satan is the ruler of this world. It does say that. It does say that he is uh, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians, and also says that he is uh, of the world's rulers of darkness of this present age. And so you may have heard the, uh, the phrase, the world is the devil's playground. Okay, uh, And so that, that is true. Like the devil, this is where he can influence us and cause us to willingly subject our free will to sin, to follow or to turn away from God, or to continue on our path toward the Lord. And so I would, I would agree, establish that common ground. I would then say it does not then follow naturally that God also has no influence or control in the world. So it's like a correlation does not mean causation. You're taking one thing and you're saying this, this follows from this, but it doesn't. And so you need to have more evidence that that follows, uh, the second premise or the second conclusion follows, that the devil is then in control of everything. And there are so many places in Scripture. I mean, just look through the Psalms. All of God's influence over creation, that he is constantly taking care of us, that he knows well the plans he has for us. It says in Jeremiah that he is like, he knows the hairs on our head, that they are counted, that he is like involved intimately in everything. And so that has to, that idea of a God and that religion's kind of theology would have to, their only concept of God would then have to be a God who basically like let creation happen and then is just watching from a distance. But there, I mean, you could count hundreds of passages in scripture where it's clear that God does not do that, that he is intimately involved and uh, ordering what is happening in our world on a daily basis. So if you just cite some of those and, and then make that kind of logical premise, I agree with you on A, but A does not then mean B. And B cannot be true because look of all the other ways that God is involved in creation, that he is also in charge of the world. And then theologically speaking, there's very subtle places where this is uh, alluded to in scripture. But theologically speaking, the catechism says that we all have a guardian angel, right? And every city actually has a guardian angel. That's what the choir of angels, the principalities, what they are in charge of, that every city has its own guardian angel called the principality. So that itself is a theological piece of evidence in our tradition that says God is intimately involved in everything in this world, that each one of us has an angel, and every city that's organized on this planet also has an angel caring for it and ensuring that it is battling and overcoming the temptation of the devil as best it can, uh, even though our free will can supersede that. So hope that answers your question. Great. Why do we go ahead, Gary? Why do we say the uh, prayer of Saint Michael at the end of Mass? Uh, it was an older tradition that fell out of practice, and uh, they wanted to reinstate. I don't, I don't know enough about the history of it offhand, um, but it's. I mean, when at the end of Mass, especially in the uh, the 
Latin rite, you hear the itamisa s, like you are sent. That's where we get the word mass from, that you are sent out. And at the end of mass, if we're being sent out, who better to be sent out with us than St. Michael the Archangel to protect us from all of the evil that is out there? Because, again, the world is the devil's playground. And so we're going out into a mission field and into a battlefield. And so it helps us, you know, that's why, you know, the, the, the cross begins mass, but also we follow the procession of the cross, just like a, uh, an army follows the procession of their banner out into the battlefield. Um, and so if you leave mass early, it's kind of like you're running into the battlefield on your own, like, yeah, and the whole army's like, dude, we're not even ready yet. What are you doing? You know? So anyway, uh, Greg. Uh, what you were just saying before, the fact that God is intimately involved in the world, mm -hmm. it almost, you almost made it sound like, you know, an argument for predestination. You know, a lot of Keyword almost. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Keyword being almost. <laughs> yeah. Almost. It's sort of like, you know, you hear people say, like, okay, um, a parent loses a child in an auto accident or something like mm -hmm. that. And someone comes and try to compensate, well, it's God's will. Well, it's not God's mm -mm. will. No, it's not. But what you were saying, like, God intimately involved in the world mm -hmm. and all that, it almost kind of sounds like it would be an excuse for thinking, people thinking, well, God controls everything. Like, I can't do anything. Well, God being intimately involved in the world is not the same as God controlling everything. Just like me being intimately involved in the life of my children does not mean I control everything that they do, even though I would very much like to sometimes. So it, there's a difference there. So God's intimate involvement in the world means that when he permits evil to happen because he allows free will, he is intimately involved in our lives in such a way that he is immediately using it to bring about a greater good. Though that evil was not intended or part of his original will for us. He permitted it, and because he permits it, he always then uses it for a greater good. Just like Jesus in his appearing week always then uses that to profess his strength. God in the same way, allowing evil, though that may seem like a weakness, it's to respect our free will out of perfect love for us, and then comes back even stronger using those bad things, those sufferings, for our greatest possible good, uh, given the state of the world that we are in. Still a fallen world, still sin existing, but still working for our greatest good. So there is a distinction there. We do not believe in predestination as Catholics. And if you don't know what that is, that's a theology, theological concept that everything is predetermined and that at the moment of our creation, God already knows whether we're going to heaven or hell and we have no choice in the matter. doesn't matter what we choose. It's all been predetermined. That's uh, Yeah, that was spearheaded by John Calvin, one of the reformers, and it shows up in a lot of or the puritanical uh, oriented or rooted faiths in the United States. So, yes. I thought there's, I've heard this before that there's a, there's like a difference between double and single predestination that Catholics have a, an idea of predestination that's different from the Calvinist view. Like it's more of a semantics thing, if anything, but, uh, have you heard of that? Is that seen I've seen that written in articles, but I don't know it well enough to be able to articulate. Gage, to you? Yes. Yeah, so what we would say is that, like, God does technically know whether we what we will choose. Yes. Because he's he gone. sees all. He's present to every moment that simultaneously. Does not our free will. Yes. It's it's the same as watching a recording of a football game versus mm -hmm. being a football player on that field. That football player is making decisions with somebody outside of the game. So to, to a certain degree, predestination is, is accurate. It's just the, the error in double predestination is that what Calvin is saying there is that God is actually creating souls explicitly with the purpose of them being divine. Which yeah, is what, which is not true. What yeah. Augustine would say is that God creates souls knowing that it's they will choose to be damned. You know, again, there's... It's, it's, it's kind of harsh language. Yeah, but we have the free will. Exactly. Yes, but we're, yeah. still, we're still free to make that decision. Yeah. Single predestination versus double predestination. So double predestination is Calvinism. Yeah, yeah. Single would be what is a term used to align with a version of Catholic theology or opinion on this, a way to articulate it. So, yeah. We're getting, we're getting heady here. All right. Who hasn't asked? Yes. Oh, Vicky. Yes, you've had your hand up, and then I'll come to you all. Mine is not so theological. <laughs> it's still, I'm sure it's going to be great. Okay, the line that, that it goes back to, I shall give you all, all these things to you if you'll prostrate yourself and worship me. Worship mm -hmm. me. Where does the devil think he's got the power to give the world to Jesus? <laughs> well, I mean, the world is very much under his influence. You know, we live in a fallen world. He thinks he can 
And I mean, if every single soul on the planet has original sin, then we're all technically born in the devil's pocket. In some sense, right? I mean, that's why the, the idea of grace and what Jesus did for us on the cross is so magnificent. Because we can't get out of that on our own. You know, um, Augustine would put it uh, in this way, even though I don't think trains existed at this time, obviously. But, you know, you're born on, uh, on a train with a one-way ticket to hell. And there's no way off. And yet, Jesus finds a way to get you off. Like, that's, that's kind of the hopeless situation that we find ourselves in because of sin and original sin and how hope-filled we can be because of what Jesus has done for us. That's something I very much envy about Christians in the Protestant world is because they get that so well. Like, they are so good at articulating, like, we are in rags in our sin, and Jesus came and utterly saved us. You know, and, that, and part of that is their faith alone theology, which we obviously disagree in. We have, you know, the concept of works and what we need and all of that, and, you know, and, and that's all correct. But they, the way they can articulate that, because that's their whole theology, is like faith, faith has saved you, is something that we could really learn a little bit from. Like how much we owe to the Lord. Like there's nothing we could do on our own. Not even close to be able to get out of that, that position that we're in, just at the moment of our birth, because of the fact that sin exists. You know, so um, I think the devil does have that ability. But what's interesting here in that phrase, I forgot to mention this, is when it says, if you will prostrate yourself and worship me, those two verbs, prostrate and worship, in the Greek language, there's this tense called the aorist tense. And what that means is basically you, uh, you do something, but based on the tense, you're only going to do it once. And so it's not like, you know, um, versus I'm going to jump versus I'm jumping. You know, you could see it like that, or I'm going to jump several times. It's just the way it's conjugated, you know it's aorist, meaning the devil is saying, all you need to do is worship and prostrate one time, and you will have all of this. And so this, again, just like later in the Garden of Gethsemane, is kind of a temptation to avoid the cross, right? Think of all of the things that you're going to have to undergo, all the persecution, all the suffering, all these ways people are going to misinterpret your words. All you have to do one time, just one time, just kneel down and worship me, and everything will be yours. That makes the temptation sound a whole lot more possible and believable in my mind. But if it's just like, oh, yeah, like Jesus is going to suddenly turn around and serve Satan forever. Like, no, obviously not. So this is why I think the devil is smarter than we may give him credit for here. Is that he kind of knows where to pinpoint these offers to the Lord. You know, and that's something to pay attention to. Again, why we have this handbook. Catherine. I'm just curious, because when I read that, I think of it as more of a Mm. he's offering them all these things and then they don't get any of that so I, I always thought it was like empty promises that he was trying to give Jesus yeah. um, I didn't really think of him as capable I thought like once you do what he asked you to do once like if Jesus prostrated himself I thought like that he wouldn't have actually been given everything he was told yeah you know, the thing I'm thinking, this is a really bad analogy, and nobody's going to get it unless you're a millennial. Does anyone remember the show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? And this show, there's like four people here. Yes, I know who my millennials are now. Uh, so it was, there was an episode about the monkey's paw. Do you remember the monkey's paw episode? The monkey's paw was like, if you got the monkey's paw, you could wish for something. And the wish would come true, but it was in this totally distorted, terrible way you didn't expect. So like, oh, I want to be uh, the prom king. And then the monkey's paw would let you be prom king. But in order for you to be prom king, the current person who was going to be prom king would die in some horrific way. And then you feel guilty because of that. It was like that kind of wish fulfillment thing. That, I think, is, is, could be at play in this interpretation. That Sure, the devil can offer this if he twists his words in the right way. That's why I think it was important you know, when I pointed out before how the devil will just use one word. He'll just twist that one word to get you to believe that you're going to get something. And then later on, yeah, you might get it, but it's in a totally different way than you did that, than you thought or than you expected. So whether or not he has the power to offer that, um, I think Jesus would have gotten that in some sense if he had bowed down and worshipped the devil, you know. But yeah, in terms of yes, you can have all of us. Like we're all the lords, you know. Obviously, so in that sense, no, he couldn't offer that without our free will. He couldn't override it. So you know, it's kind of like a both and. So yeah. Uh, Lynn. So this is on a little different subject, but I know you've talked many times about the meaning of numbers. Yes. And 
you know, uh, Jesus went out on the desert for 40 days. Mm -hmm. The Israel Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. Mm -hmm. I think Noah it was raining for 40 days. Yep. What is the significance of 40, if any? I mean, the significance in terms of a, like a literary device is relating back to all of those people. But I don't, I can't recall when 40 is first used, like why it's used in that particular way. I know it has some kind of significance. It's kind of like seven. It's like this kind of completion number. Um, it's also the number of days that Elijah makes on pilgrimage to go to Mount Sinai when he climbs to the top and then he hears God in the whisper, not in the thunder or the earthquake or in the fire, but in the silent whisper. Uh, it's the same number of days. And so in essence, it is Jesus, Matthew, articulating that Jesus is standing in the line of these great patriarchs and figures and yet is even greater than them because he can overcome the devil, which is something none of them could have done. Noah didn't. He fell into drunkenness and he broke his covenant. Moses didn't trust in the Lord. Uh, in the situation with the water and the rock, with the waters at Meribah in Exodus chapter 17, he didn't get to go into the promised land. You know, um, Elijah got taken up into heaven in a golden chariot or whatever, so he's pretty good. But, you know, like Jesus is basically like, he's being presented as the archetype of these great people. You know, the new Moses, the new Elijah, the new patriarch coming. And he does, he's basically a living representation of the people of Israel in this. Because right before this, what happens? He passes through the waters of baptism just like the Hebrew people passed through the Red Sea to go wander in the desert for 40 years, and he goes out for 40, 40 days to go and face temptation. And what are those temptations? But the same temptations they faced in the desert. For food, they needed manna from heaven, and God gave it to them. When they were grumbling, they wanted to go back into slavery. How great our flesh pots were back in Egypt, right? After being out for, what, three months, after 400 years of slavery. And then the next chapter, when uh, Moses doesn't trust that God is going to bring water from the, the rock, he taps it too many times, and that's where you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then bowing down and worshiping the devil, that is the temptation of idolatry in the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. It's the same temptations of the Israelite people, and Jesus is basically saying, like, I am coming to stand in your place to redeem what you could not do for yourself. And I'm going to show you from the very beginning of my ministry that I have the power to do this. And again, I'm going to tell this story to you. So later on, even if you're not part of this generation that is immediately, immediately going to see this redemption and experience it, you're going to be part of the perpetual generations who have the handbook on how to face the devil and can see the power that I have to overcome sin and the devil for you and with you. Perfect answer. <laughs> Beautiful. That is the power of this. Um, we have to close. I love how many questions we're getting. If you have more, please come up. But I wanted to share this one final, or two final things. And one of them is, uh, there's a great book that I cannot remember the name of, but it's, it's by Henry Nouwen. And he's one of my favorite spiritual authors of all time. And he writes a book on leadership on these three temptations. And he aligns these three temptations uh, with the temptation to be uh, relevant, turn this, this bread into, this stone into bread. Like, oh, look how, look how great I am. Look what I can do. Uh, the temptation to be spectacular, throw yourself off a building and survive, and then have all of this influence and power, the temptation to be powerful. And those three temptations, he argues that all of us, even though you're, you may not consider yourself a leader, our job is to lead others to Christ. And so in one sense, we're all being called into some form of leadership. And so the devil is going to be keen on tempting us toward all three of those things, whichever one might be more uh, satisfying or alluring to us, the temptation of being relevant, of being spectacular, of being powerful. And what do you think is the most luxur or luxurious or uh, uh, what's the word, uh, acclaimed career for young people today? An influencer, someone who is relevant, someone who's spectacular, someone who is powerful, right? The devil still is playing the same tricks. He's still working by the same handbook, but we here have the answers. And Lent, brothers and sisters, is the answer because what is the thing that we do in temptations of food or bodily things? Turning stone into bread? No, we can say no to that bread because we can fast. We can say no to the things of this world and being spectacular and having influence over the world by giving alms. And we can say no to letting the devil have influence over us because we allow the Lord to have influence over every day of our lives in prayer. Those three practices of Lent, why this gospel is so relevant for us as we enter into the season, because that is the handbook. That's the toolkit. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. You want to know what to do to face the devil and sin and temptation in your life. Jesus shows you here, and those are the practices, brothers and sisters. And so if you want to have a radically transformational Lent, this was what the Holy Spirit really put on my heart to say at the end of this today. 
I want you to think about what is the one thing in your life that if it was changed or different would be totally game-changing for you. Like it would, it would change everything. If this one thing was gone, different, or changed. Whatever that is for you, pray and lean into that and find a way to realize that in prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe I can help you if you have some specific questions, but what is that thing that would be the biggest game changer in your life to bring you from who you are now to the person that God is calling you to be? Radical transformation. I said this at the event yesterday, if you were here, uh, no one ever had a radical transformation in the season of Lent because they gave up Dr. Pepper or chocolate. Nobody ever became a saint because they gave up those things during Lent, okay? And you're not going to either. So think about what is the game changer? What is the thing that I'm attached to that I need to let go of that can bring me into deeper relationship with Christ so that I will be closer and closer to being that saint God created me to be on Easter morning? Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, thank you for this rich word. We've heard this gospel probably so many times, Lent after Lent, and yet it still pours out more and more question and reflection. And so we just thank you, Lord, for the gift of that outpouring and your grace and your wisdom that's present here tonight. And I just ask that you uh, help stir in each of our hearts some, some leaning, some direction toward the things that you are calling us to commit to or calling us to abstain and fast from in this Lenten season. Things that are not just trivial, things that are not just second chances at our New Year's resolutions, but things that are actually going to bring about radical spiritual transformation in our life, radical detachment from the things of this world. And so help us remember that you have already given us all the tools that we need. You've given us the handbook to overcome the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil through the powerful weapons of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And so we pray, Lord, that we would make commitments in all three of those areas that are bold and that will bring radical transformation this Lent, so that we can truly be a joyful, renewed, radically transformed Easter people this coming Easter Sunday. Bless us each in the ways we most need it as we begin this beautiful Lenten season and help us to accompany and journey with one another well, because Lent often is not easy, Lord, and that's the point. And so help us to be sacrificial, but also recognize when our brothers and sisters around us are struggling and be a support to them, to encourage them to continue fighting this battle, because it is worth fighting and it needs to be fought together. No one can do it alone, and so help us to know you are with us. You've given us all we need, and that we need to be remaining steadfast with one another. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.